0: The the subject that Jesus covers in the section on the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to talk through today is just a heavy one. He's going to talk about murder. And, you know, when uh, when we think of the way that we live as Christians today and the fact that there are things that that we believe differently about than the world does, where where we clash against the world, Um, like, like in areas about sexuality or sexual immorality, we just, we're different. We view things differently than the world around us does. Um, when it comes to things like divorce, we, we view things differently than the way that the world does, or abortion, or, or even kind of for, forgiveness, or some of those things. We, we have a different viewpoint. Um, but with murder, we, we don't feel out of step with the world. We feel like, all right, all right as a culture, at least as an American culture, we, we pretty much agree that that doesn't mean that murder has evaporated from our nation. It just means that ideologically, I, I don't need to spend a lot of time at the beginning of this sermon saying, I know it's going to be hard for you to swallow, but murder is bad. We're pretty much saying, all right, we we agree that murder is bad. Um, A thing as a nation that we don't tend to agree on is the best way to deal with the fact that it still happens and the best way to combat the reality of murder in our culture. And, you know, and so for some people, they'll they'll kind of ride the train of saying, the way that we need to deal with this is by getting rid of guns. Um, And and so we're going to make that a a major quest in order to, to help curb murder. We'll get rid of the weapons. Um, And for other people, they might point towards violence in movies and TV shows and video games and say this has desensitized us and so murder happens a lot because people just don't see human life as valuable because we have video games and TV shows where it's treated as disposable. Um, Or some people will talk about the breakdown of the family and say the, the real key here is to build back up the family and specifically to have fathers involved in the lives of their sons so that the sons don't turn in this violent way. Um, And all those are things worth worth looking at, but what we're going to get to look at this morning is how does King Jesus address this problem? So we're talking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the, the whole idea is Jesus is laying out, here's what life looks like if you treat Jesus like the king, which is why we've titled the series, Who is Your King? Because each week we get to come face to face with the words of Jesus and say, are we really living as citizens of the kingdom? Or are we treating Jesus simply as somebody who swooped in, saved us, promised us heaven, and then went away? Are we not only thankful to Him as a Savior, but are we living as if He is the King? And are we showing the kingdom to others by treating Jesus as our one true King? And part of what we're going to get to see this week and and in the weeks that follow is that when, when Jesus encounters these different subjects, King Jesus transforms not only our external behavior but our internal reality. Jesus is not concerned simply with saying, we're going to try to deal with the the behavior on the outside and make sure that's in line. He says, murder, amongst other things, murder doesn't happen out of nowhere. There is a heart condition that leads to the horrific and violent crime of murder. And some of you may have thought, all right, well, well, this is, you know, come into this thinking, all right, there are some sermons that are really convicting and really difficult, but I haven't murdered, so I'm good. I get a free pass on this one. I'm not going to feel bad about myself. I'm not going to squirm in my seat. I'm just going to warn you, Jesus is going to make all of us uncomfortable with the words that we read in this passage. But what he's ultimately going to point towards is that his concern for our lives is not just that we would stop doing behaviors, but that we would have our lives transformed from the inside out. And so we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And in this passage, as Jesus talks about the subject of murder and and expounds upon the Old Testament command about murder, he's going to talk about three things that we need to deal with if we're really going to deal with it in light of what King Jesus says. And the first thing he's going to tell us in verse 21 is that we are called to deal with our hearts. This is not simply an exterior issue. This is an issue that begins in the heart. But he begins with the Old Testament command. So Matthew 5, 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so he calls back, Jesus is beginning a pattern that he's gonna do six times throughout the, the rest of chapter five, where he starts by saying, you have heard it said. And each time that he says this, he's calling back to something in the Old Testament, calling back to something that that the Jewish people who are listening to him would have said, yep, that's established law. That's how we're supposed to live. So he says, you've heard it said, you've heard the command, you shall not murder. And it's worth just pausing. Some of you may have, when you originally learned the Ten Commandments, or when you think of the Ten Commandments, you think in your head, thou shalt not kill. Um, the, The word murder is actually very important here, as opposed to just the word, thou shalt not kill. And in his commentary on the book of Matthew, Craig Blomberg says, murder is the correct rendering since the underlying Hebrew word did not include killing and self-defense, wars ordered by Yahweh, capital punishment following due process of law, or accidental manslaughter. So in other words, here's what he's saying. The word murder doesn't just mean any time one person kills another person says so for the Hebrew people, it didn't cover some of these other cases. It didn't cover accidents. An accident wasn't a murder. It didn't cover self-defense. That's not a murder. It didn't cover the death penalty when the death penalty was carried out in due process. If somebody just went out and killed in revenge because they thought the person deserved to be put to death, that would be murder. But if there was due process by the law, that wasn't considered murder. And then killing in wars was not considered murder. So we're talking about something more specific, and it's important at least to get to that. That when Jesus is talking about the whole idea of not murdering, what he's not saying is Christians can't be involved in the military, Christians can't be police officers, you can't kill somebody in self-defense, that that's a different issue to deal with. He's saying, you've heard the basic command, you are not supposed to unilaterally just decide that another human being should no longer be on the planet. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And if you do murder, you'll be subject to judgment. And the judgment he's talking about is probably just the human judgment. You will will stand before judgment in the community and you will be punished for that murder. Now, probably again, for all of us, we're like, so far, so good. So far, so good. I can go with this. I think that this is a good command. I'm willing to follow through on this. I'm, I'm willing to treat murder as something very seriously. But the pattern that Jesus is starting off is that he's gonna say, You've heard it said. And then, as he does in verse 22, he's gonna say, But I tell you. So, starting in verse 22, Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Uh, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, we will be danger in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus just made this a much more uncomfortable conversation. Jesus says, you shall not murder. And we're like, amen, we're good. Jesus says, but I'm going to tell you that if you're angry with somebody else or you call them raka, which means empty-headed, kind of means like moron. If you call somebody raka or if you call somebody fool, you not only are in the danger of a human court, you are in danger of God's judgment. You are in danger of hell. We could take a quick survey right here. Anybody ever been angry with anybody else before? Anybody ever used the word fool about somebody else? This is uncomfortable stuff. We thought we were good. We're like, no conviction in this sermon. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't murder anyone. Jesus says, I'm talking to all of you that were angry with somebody else in your heart. I'm talking to all of you who called somebody else an empty-headed or a foolish person. By the way, you might read that and say, well, maybe in their culture, you know, the the word raka or the word fool, those were like worse words that really had a lot more bite. And the bottom line is, no, not really. They're kind of like the way that we would use these words today. They weren't especially vulgar words. So Jesus, all of a sudden, is taking the standard and saying, I'm going to deal with something else. I'm going to deal with the internal reality. Murder doesn't happen simply because the opportunity presents itself to a person. There's a heart condition that leads to murder, and Jesus is going to go back and deal with it. Now, here's the challenge in dealing with Jesus' words here. Um, We want to be able to take them seriously for the shocking words that they are, where he's not going to let any of us wiggle off the hook for this. And and at the same time, we want to understand them rightly. We want to say, all right, let's really get what's going on here without neutering the power of what Jesus says. But there are some things we should take into account. When he says, if any of you is angry with somebody else, um... Jesus got angry at some different times. So at the very least, as a mitigating factor, we we should say, all right, well, apparently with Jesus, it was possible to be angry without what he's talking about here as as a deep sin. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. He's not saying if you have the flood of anger, if you have the emotion of anger, man, you're just as bad as a murderer. There's got to be something more to this because it is possible to be angry without sinning. Jesus also, and this is a really shocking part, this word that Jesus says, if anybody calls their brother, you fool, guess what Jesus called the Pharisees? Blind fools in Matthew 23. We could look at this and say, all right, wait a second. There's got to be something more going on than just these exact things because Jesus did get angry. And and we believe from scripture that there's an appropriate anger that can happen. That doesn't necessarily lead to sin. And also, Jesus can't be quite specifying just this specific word because he used that specific word in what we would see as an appropriate context. So we've got to back up and say, what is the big picture? What is it that Jesus is saying when he backs up and says, I'm not going to tell you just not to murder somebody else. I'm going to back it up to the heart level. And I think what he's going for at the ultimate level is the idea that, that, again, he's saying murder starts at the heart level. And when you murder somebody else, what you're basically saying is, I have determined that you should no longer be in the world, so I'm going to take you out of the world. In your heart, when you end up with contempt for another person, you can be at the place of saying, I have decided in my heart, maybe I'm not going to act on it, but I've decided in my heart that you no longer deserve to be in the world. And that is the heart condition that precedes every real world murder that happens on an individual level or on a mass level. I mean, you think of this with the Nazis and with Hitler, the way that they were able to carry out the mass murders was by deciding the Jews don't count as people. They don't count as people. They don't get a vote. We have contempt for them. Therefore, it's up to us and we get to decide they don't belong in the world with the different slavery and killings of black people that happened in our country. That was largely based on the idea, they aren't people, they don't count, we can treat them with contempt, therefore we'll just go ahead and take them out of the world. This is the heart condition that precedes murder. And Jesus is saying, if you've come to the point in your heart that maybe you're not going to act on it, maybe you're not going to go ahead and kill this person, but you've decided in your heart, this person no longer deserves to live. You are in danger, not just of human judgment, but divine judgment. Now, let's just try to make this real for a minute. So this was the, uh, uh, probably like five years ago. There was this thing going around on social media. Um, it wasn't quite a game, but it was, it was sort of like one of those games or one of those quiz things. And uh, the quiz thing that was going around was you were supposed to name the five people that you most wanted to punch in the face. Um, some of you will remember this. I'm not making this up. Um, And for some reason, Matthew McConaughey was really popular in this game. I don't know why there was so much animosity towards him, but people, and it would be celebrities, or politicians, or actors, or people like that. And and people would post and list, these are the five people that, given the opportunity, I would most like to punch in the face. And it really, when I saw this, it really made me think. And and I was, you know, as I was filling out my top five, I was, (laughs) on I'm I'm kidding. Um, This is a quiz I didn't take. But I was just thinking about what's behind, and and the thing that it made me realize is I was saying, all right, if you are filling this out, basically what you are saying is I am just as bad as the person who actually would go out and punch them, because the only thing separating me from it is opportunity and consequences. I want to do it. I want to go up and punch them in the face, but maybe I don't want to go to jail, and maybe I just don't have the opportunity because I don't know where they are. But if that's all that's separating you for doing it, your moral state is no better than the person who actually does it. So that brings up the bigger question that are there times where we are saying in our hearts, if I could get away with it, here's what I'd do to this person. Here's what I'd do to this person. How dare they say that to me? Man, if I could get them alone in the room and get away with it. Man, maybe I wouldn't hit them, but man, if I could get away with it, I would take a baseball bat to their car. I I would show them that they can't treat me this way. I'd show them they can't treat people this way. Man, if I could just get away with it. And what Jesus is saying is, if the only thing separating you from doing this is that you don't think you can get away with it or you don't have the opportunity, your heart condition is no different than the person who actually goes through with it. Murder doesn't begin with the act of unlawful killing. Murder begins with a heart condition of contempt and judgment that decides, I determine whether or not you are worthy of life. Begin to think, right now. And again, some of you, we are going to get to this, but some of you might be thinking, all right, I I do have anger towards somebody, but but my anger is justified. It's it's because they did something bad. We'll get into that a little bit more, but just start right now and say, is there somebody in your life that you've just said, I'm done with them. I've ridden them off don't need to talk to them, don't need to be with them. In fact, man, and, and for some of you, this might get real because you might say, yeah, sometimes I do kind of fantasize about what it would be like and what I could get away with if I could just really show them how I feel and really show them what I think of them. This is the heart reality that Jesus is calling us to. And King Jesus says, I'm not satisfied with just the idea that you don't carry through on the murder. I want to deal with the internal And this goes back, if you were here last week, Jesus ended the passage we went through last week by saying to to his people, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes of the Pharisees, unless you have a righteousness that is better than these people who are so observant that they tithe not only on their money, but they tithe the herbs of their garden, that they observe every law in the book, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, you're not worthy of the kingdom. And Jesus is not saying to them, so be more legalistic. He's saying, deal not just with the exterior, deal with the heart. If we're going to deal with murder, we've got to deal with the heart. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He talks about how this plays itself out. And so he says, all right, first and foremost, we're called to deal with our hearts. But secondly, we're called to deal with others. In other words, if we're going to deal with this, this isn't just us getting in isolation or or even just us getting before God and saying, all right, God, help me with this and help me no longer be so mad at this person and so enraged with them. It also involves the interactions that we have face to face. So in verse 23, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift. So Jesus says, all right, let me give you a scenario. Here's the scenario. You are offering a gift at the altar, which would have been a frequent activity for the Israelites. They would have gone, there were all kinds of sacrifices that they were supposed to offer. You can read the Old Testament. There there were animal sacrifices, and there were sacrifices when they, they got the first of their harvest. All kinds of offerings that they'd give. Now, Jesus uses specific terminology that some of the commentators say it appears that he's not talking about a required sacrifice, but a free will offering. Because he says, when you offer your gift on the altar, which may, it's not for sure, but it probably points towards the fact that this is not a person that says, oh, every year at this time we have to come and I have to offer a lamb. This is what you do as an Israelite. But instead, it's a time where they're saying, nobody's requiring this of me. I don't have to give this, but I love God. I want to show him that I love him. I want to show him that I trust him. I want to show him that I'm thankful to him. I I want to show God how much I care. And so of my own free will, nobody's making me do this. I'm bringing a gift to the altar. I'm not bringing something that I'm required. I'm bringing a gift to the altar. And the other thing that you may know about the Israelites when they would bring a gift to the altar is usually they were not the only one bringing a gift to the altar, Oftentimes, there were masses of people at these different holidays bringing gifts to the altar, which means you got to wait in line. Now, Jesus doesn't say when you're at the back of the line or when you're thinking about making an offering and you remember somebody has something against you. He says, if you are offering your gift as the altar, which means you've got to the front of the line and you're in the process of offering it. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Disneyland with a kid before. Some of you know where I'm going with this. And you wait in line for the ride. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And then as you're starting to get close to the front, your kid turns to you and says, I have to go to the bathroom. That's a crisis moment for most of us. And what many of us, the, the first thing you usually try to figure out as a parent is, is there any possible way that we can do the ride and then go to the bathroom? And, you know, and sometimes, all right, yeah, I think I can hold it. Sometimes the kid is saying, I can't, I have to go right now. As a parent, you've got to make that tough decision because you're looking at it and you're saying, if, if we get out, I can't go back there, I can't do it. I can't go to the back of the line. And if we get out of line, we lose our place. We've waited all this time. I can't go to the back again. I've put in all this work. It should pay off. Jesus is saying, if you waited in line that entire time and got to the front, you're in the middle of offering your gift. And then you remember somebody has something against you. He doesn't say, finish up with the gift real quickly and then go. He says, leave the gift at the altar And go and be reconciled. This is big. I just don't want us to miss. This is a big thing. Jesus is communicating urgency here. He's saying, don't look at it and say, all right, well, sometime by the end of the week, I'll I'll try to get to this. He says, you move right away, even if you're doing something important, something pretty important, like offering a gift on the altar, a gift on the altar that's saying to God, God, I love you so much. I care so much for you. I want to thank you. He says, before you do that, go take care of this. Which, by the way, even points, John, the Apostle John really got this idea. Because in 1 John, he says, if anybody says, I love God, but hates their brother or sister, they're a liar. God is deeply concerned with our reconciliation to one another. And in essence, Jesus is saying, don't go to God and be like, God, I love you so much. I care for you so much. I just want to praise you so much. When you're in open conflict with a brother or sister. Now it's also, some of you might've been struck by the fact that he doesn't say, if you're about to offer the gift and you remember that you have something against somebody else. He says, if you're about to offer the gift and you remember that somebody has something against you. Um, and I'm gonna offer you a theory. I can't prove this, so don't take this as gospel truth. But, but I have a theory of why he specifies and says, if you remember somebody has something against you, instead of saying, if, if you have something against them. And, and the reason is because there's a lot of times where we have something against somebody And that doesn't necessarily mean we're supposed to do anything about it. There are a lot of times that you might say, I have something against this person, but it's really just because they annoy you. It's really just because they've irritated you or there's been something that you should let roll off your back that they've done. So Jesus doesn't come to us and say, if you realize that there's a person in your life that irritates you, drop everything and go tell them about how they irritate you. That is not Jesus calling, by the way. Sometimes we're just supposed to deal with stuff before God and say, oh, this person, they do things that are really annoying to me, um, and it frustrates me, but, but it's, it's not something they're not sinning against me, and, and God, please help me get through this, because I, I don't want to be irritated with this person for these things. You don't need to go to the person and be like, just so you know, I'm really praying before God about how I get over my irritation concerning you. That's not helpful. <laughs> so sometimes there is a point where we say, well, I have something against this person, it's because they sinned against me, or it's because we're in open conflict. But if you remember there's somebody that has something against you, that points to a more objective reality. That means there is an open conflict. If you have an internal conflict, you might be able to solve that conflict by just getting over it and moving on. If somebody else has something against you, you can't just decide that the conflict is done. You have to go to them to seek to resolve it as if you're there and you're about to give this act of worship to God. And, and by the way, we, we might, today we might be tempted to say, well, what's the parallel with today? Is it saying, don't come into a church service until I've done this? Or don't read my Bible until I've done this? Or don't take communion until I've done this? And, and I don't think that's the key. I think the key is that Jesus is saying, treat this with urgency. And don't think you're all good with God if you're not willing to do the hard work of reconciliation with one another. Now, the other point to this is you can't simply decide to fix a broken relationship. The Apostle Paul says, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. So it means, all right, you can go, you can apologize, you can talk to them, you can try to do all you can to reconcile. You can't unilaterally do this. But Jesus is saying, make reconciliation the priority. Drop what you're doing and seek to deal with that other person. And again, I just want you to pause and think, is there somebody in your life right now that you've just kind of said, I'm done with them? Is there somebody in your life that you are in open conflict with? Um, Daniel Dukes was telling me about a a sermon that he heard on this same passage by a guy named Bob Goff. And in the middle of the sermon, at this point, he just said, you know what? All of you, I'm going to invite all of you right now. If there's somebody that you need to reconcile with, take out your phone and just text them right now, text them, I'm sorry, because that'll at least get the process started. I mean, I want to invite you right now, if you're, I know some of you are already looking at your phones anyway, so you might as well do this, <laughs> as well, say, it's not going to solve the whole deal. That doesn't mean that the discussion's done, but if right now you're like, oh my gosh, this is for me right now. This is for me. There's somebody I need to do this with. You can't solve it all in a text, but at the very least, if you want to, I won't be offended. If you want to get out of your phone and just text, I'm sorry, I really want to make things better. Um, That's a start in the process. That's saying to God, you know what? I'm not going to pause. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to rationalize. I'm going to act and move towards reconciliation. And I can't control it. I can't be sure it's going to happen. But I'm not going to leave any stone unturned as I try to live at peace with my brothers and sisters. Jesus says, don't think that you're good with God if you're disregarding others or treating them with contempt. Deal with your heart. Deal with others. But then there's a last movement here that's really important and kind of surprising. What he says is, we're called to deal with God. Now I'm gonna read verses 25 and 26, and we'll we'll deal with it on the surface level, but I'm totally convinced there's something else going on here beyond the surface. So he says in verse 25: Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So on the surface, what we've got here is is just another scenario. He gave a scenario in verses 23 and 24. You're at the altar about to offer your gift. Go and be reconciled first. So on the surface, he's given us another scenario in verses 25 and 26. And seemingly it's, it's, uh, all right, so so you have a, a lawsuit pending, Um, seems to be a financial lawsuit, and uh, you're about to go face the judge, and he says, before you get to the judge, settle the case. Come to terms with the person who's accusing you. Settle the case, come up with some kind of agreement about how you're gonna make things right between you, because if you don't, and he doesn't even say, do this with noble motives. He says, do this because if you don't do this, he's gonna bring you before the judge, and the judge is gonna hand you over to the officer, officer's gonna throw you in prison, seemingly debtor's prison, and you are gonna work off that debt, until it's all paid. So he says, settle the matter before you are before the judge. So on the surface, we could say, well, Jesus just gives one more example of why um, it's important for us to prize reconciliation as as people who bow the knee to King Jesus. But but I think the, the commentators point towards the fact there's something else at work here. This is not just what it seems. And one of the reasons why I'm convinced that this isn't what it seems is because Jesus uses this same parable, this same scenario, almost the exact same wording in Luke chapter 12. And what he uses it, you can look it up later. In fact, let me make sure I give you the verses if you do want to look it up later. Luke chapter 12, verses 58 and 59. Um, And in those verses, the context is very clearly speaking about the final judgment. Jesus has spent most of chapter 12 saying, prepare yourself for the final judgment. Prepare yourself for God's judgment. And when he uses this little parable in there, what he's saying is, make things right before you get before the ultimate judge. Uh, Here's what I believe Jesus is saying in this this little interchange, in this little parable. What he's saying is, I just told you, make things right with your brothers and sisters. (laughs) Now, do that now so that you don't have to account before it at the final judgment. When he's talking about them bringing you before the judge and the judge handing you to the officer and the officer handing you over to prison, he's not just talking about this is a scenario that you may face in life. He's saying, eventually we will all stand before God. And if you haven't sought reconciliation with your brothers and sisters here, you will have to answer about that before God. So settle it now before judgment comes. Now, I wanna say a couple of things just, just for, for those of us who are believers to make sure that, that we're not misunderstanding this Um, because you can say, all right, right." so is Jesus saying that if there's somebody that I haven't reconciled with, that I'm going to hell until I reconcile with them? Um, And the answer is no. The Apostle Paul makes it absolutely clear. For those of us that are in Christ, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation for us. We are not living our lives feverishly trying to make sure that we get our affairs in order so that we don't end up in hell. We know we will survive condemnation, that we won't end up being condemned, not because we've got our affairs in order, but because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins and we're welcomed into God's family through him. We don't face condemnation. But here's what I think Jesus is absolutely saying. And this may be a message that some of you need to hear. There will be people who will end up in hell because obviously they made the choice not to bow the knee to Jesus. And the specific reason why some of those people made the choice not to bow the knee to Jesus is because Jesus called them to humble themselves and reconcile with others. And they said, no, I'm not doing it. Jesus is saying there will be people who are kept out of the kingdom of God because they're unwilling to humble themselves and reconcile with others. They say, that's a bridge too far. I'm not willing to bow the knee. I'm gonna do things my own way. And even for those of us that could say, all right, well, well so I don't need to be scared that I'm gonna be cast into hell because of this. The, the point still remains that Jesus is saying to God, this is of utmost importance. This is so significant that I'm gonna use a strong language. God cares, that, that person right now that you're thinking, I, all right, I guess I should reconcile with them. But then immediately you think, I'm not sure they're worth it. That's not the big question. They may not be worth it. God is worth it. God is saying that the primary person you should be concerned with when you're pursuing reconciliation is not that other person. It's your relationship with God and your obedience to Him. Some of you know who Corey Tenboom is. Um, but uh, for those of you who don't, Corey Tenboom uh, and her family hid Jews during the Holocaust. Um, she was in Holland, and her family was in Holland, and they got caught. Because they were doing this, and Corey Ten Boom and some members of her family ended up in concentration camps. And Corey and her sister specifically ended up in a concentration camp called Raisenbrück. And her sister Betsy died during that time there. But Corey survived. And afterwards, actually not very long afterwards, in 1947, Corey Ten Boom was in Germany speaking at a church, speaking to a crowd of people about forgiveness. And she says, it's actually a little bit comical. She says, when I get to the end of the talks, people would just get up and leave. There wasn't this big meet and greet afterwards. But when her message ended and the service ended, people all got up and headed to the back, but one man started heading towards the front. And immediately as this man started heading towards the front, she recognized him as one of the guards who had terrorized them at Ravensbruck. I'll go on and read you the story. She says, now he was in front of me hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And there he stood, waiting for a handshake, while Corey Ten Boom went into the deepest internal battle she had ever been through. And then he goes on to say, because she says, I recognize him, I, I don't think he recognized me. He says... You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, will you forgive me? She says, as I stood there, I, who sinned again and again, had, had to be forgiven and could not forgive Betsy, her sister, Betsy had died in that place. Could he now erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? She says, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And she says, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had uh, had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And so she comes to grips with this reality. She finally puts out her hand to embrace hers. And she says, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, that's just breathtaking. I mean, when you think about ourselves, we're like, I don't want to forgive the guy who cut me off on the freeway. I mean, this is real stuff. And I don't want to minimize, because some of you, you have real stuff, where you're saying, you don't understand, that this isn't a light offense. This person really hurt me. This person really let me down. They really wronged me. And your anger, at least to an extent, your anger is right. It's righteous anger, because it's looking at something that's sinful and wrong and destructive. And you're saying that's sinful and wrong and destructive. And there's nothing wrong with Corey Ten Boom looking at the actions of this guard and saying those were horrific things. She was right on all of that. But the power of what we see here is that God, and the kingdom of God, is not going to shine brightly in our world if we simply have a church where a bunch of people agree not to murder each other. Unbelievers aren't going to look at that and say, well, God's really at work there because they're not murdering each other. You hear this story and you say, that's something different. That's some, there has to be some kind of divine activity. There has to be a transformation of the heart for that to happen. And some of you might even be saying, now, I can't do that. I, like I, I, I wasn't wronged as deeply as her, but I don't think I can do it. And the bottom line is, you're right, you can't do it. But in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You can't, but you can with a new heart. And what Jesus affirms, and the New Testament authors affirm again and again, is that the only path to a new heart is through a new birth. There may be some of you here that, that are not Christians and are saying, I don't know how I would get to the point that I could forgive somebody like that. And I would say you won't get to the point that you can forgive somebody like that. You won't get a new heart unless you experience a new birth. Unless you experience the forgiveness that God gives us through Jesus. And unless you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit transforming your heart. But the good news for those of us who are believers in Jesus is that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That profound forgiveness that we see there, that is accessible to us. God has called us not simply to say, well, I'm not gonna do the violence that I really wanna do, but to have our hearts transformed towards forgiveness and reconciliation. As you take all this in, I, I, again, I've, I've talked about the fact that for, for many of us, there may be a person that we need to take action with. But I'll say even before taking that action, our first and foremost issue here is we need to deal with our hearts. We need to deal with this before God. So for those of you that are thinking, all right, I feel like I kind of have my marching orders. I know what I'm supposed to do. I want to take a moment to pray for all of us that God would powerfully transform us, not only to be in the kind of people that don't carry out the act of murder, but to be in the kinds of people who don't harbor that in our hearts. So let's pray together. Father, this calling that you give us, it is, um, it is a surpassing righteousness. It's, um, it's overwhelming. And it's daunting because even if right now there are some of us that don't, um, don't feel the deep temptation towards hatred, uh, we, we know that we likely will at some point because there are times that people hurt us so deeply that we want the world to be rid of them. Father, I pray that you forgive us of our contempt. I pray that you forgive us of any violence that we have perpetrated I pray that you heal our hearts. I pray especially for people right now that feel like they are in the same battle that Corey Ten Boom was. They are in the wrestling match of their life right now over their soul and over their bitterness and, and hatred and anger. Father, I pray that you bring healing so that they can walk forward in healing and forgiveness. I pray that we would respond with reconciliation, not even primarily because we believe that the other person is worth it, but because we believe that you are worth it and because we want to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like. We want to show the world a kingdom in which people forgive even when they're deeply wronged. I pray that you bring us the healing. I pray that you shine your light through us. And I just, I pray especially for anyone here who who is paralyzed by the thought of this, that you would give them the strength to move forward, the strength to get prayer, to get help, to get support, but to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.